It's Thursday, November 10th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now we find ourselves in this, the liminal period between voting and knowing. Distracting to some, frustrating to others, certainly trying to anyone who tries not to tune in to all the bullshit claims of election fraud. The liminality has been thrust upon us. Thank you, Arizona. Thank you, Nevada. And damn you, curse you, California. Can you get your count together? But here we are. And so we must breathe in, breathe out, and think about that which is unknown, but hopefully soon to be knowable. If you want red-hot political content, we have that. I'd recommend Not Even Mad, where today you'll hear Virginia Heffernan say... Well, the short answer is inflation and abortion. Ablation. Inbortion. So now we wait to see how the ablation and abortion issue winds up playing with the mocker psalms and the Daskar nads. You know what I could do? I could do for you is why don't you just follow the people that I follow, the best people in each state to tell you when these votes are going to come. By the way, in Arizona, it's not until November 14th or 15th when you have to break out a calendar days after election day to figure out when you know how your country will be run. That's not a great thing. So I recommend, well, John Ralston is great in Nevada, but his man on the ground there with his outlet, the Nevada Independent, is Sean Galanka, at S underscore Galanka. And then a race that I and maybe you would be very interested in is in Colorado, where Lauren Boebert has just pulled ahead by a couple hundred votes. There are apparently a couple thousand out there. I follow Anna Lynn Winfrey, whose Twitter handle, not Mastodon yet, Twitter is A-N-N-A-L-Y-N-N-F-R-E-Y. She collapsed the Lynn and the Win. Ah, sort of coquettish there, Anna Lynn, but makes maybe hard to follow you. Anna Linfrey is the handle of the very good political reporter in Colorado, Anna Lynn Winfrey. And as for Arizona, the ABC 15 data guru, Garrett Archer, is giving me my information. Garrett, two R's, two T's, underscore Archer. I want to tell you in this space, since we don't have actual results, of a little journey I went on in the spiel. You'll hear me talking about Putin's chef. You know that guy? Yevgeny Prigozhin. There was a reference to him that I read in the New York Times of his being a former hot dog seller. So I went to look up, I wanted to get the exact quote. So I went to the New York Times and looked up the correct spelling of Prigozhin and hot dog, and there was nothing. There was nothing on Prigozhin and hot dogs. There were other places I said to myself, was it not the New York Times? I really think it was the New York Times. So I did a search again, Prigozhin, made sure it was spelled right, and I started scrolling through all the individual stories that just referenced Prigozhin at all and looking for hot dogs. And I couldn't find, yes, I was looking for hot dogs. I was like a Diogenes, but with a bun, an empty bun, an empty potato bun instead of a lantern. And I couldn't figure it out. And I said to myself, oh my God, maybe this was something that they expunged from the digital record. And I remember that it was a day or two ago and my recycling because of election day has been screwed up and I was still waiting on the curb. So I went out and I started leafing through old editions of the New York Times. And you know what I found? I found that the New York Times hyphenates hot dog. And that's why my search for hot dog was turning up nothing. Only it doesn't exactly, well, it doesn't always hyphenate hot dog. What it did in this case was because it described him as a hot dog seller, it hyphenated the hot dog that would modify or describe the seller. 
lest you conclude that this man who is a vicious warlord also on the streets of St. Petersburg sold warmed huskies to the populace. He was a hot dog seller. No, no, I don't understand. Help me with a hyphen. And so they did. And that, by the way, is what's on the show today in the spiel all about the hot dog seller, hot dog seller, Yevgeny Prigozhin. But first, we continue our conversation with Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, which looks at warring parties and especially at the psychology that perpetuates the conflict. Today, we talk about the chances for a civil war and how a former gang leader introduced techniques to various Senate chiefs of staff. Amanda Ripley up next. Amanda Ripley is the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. There is no conflict higher than the threat of a civil war. I've been talking about it. You've probably been reading about it. So I started by asking about it. Amanda, what do you think of the coverage of the threat of a civil war? Does that, to some extent, perpetuate itself? Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, it's like, what are we really asking? You know, I mean, again, I think it's helpful to look at an analogy. So I'm I'm assuming you're talking about those polls that are like, you know, do you think a civil war is going to happen in America? And you get, you know, pretty big uh, affirmatives from the American public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's sort of like, what is it we're really trying to find out there? And that's that's maybe the interesting question. So every high conflict has the thing we argue about over and over again to the point of stupefaction, right? And then the thing it's really about too, right? The thing underneath the thing. And so trying to figure out what that is, the understory of the conflict is always a more useful uh, use of polling and, and time and resources and energy. So I think what you're really asking people there is probably something like, are you frightened? Right? That's what they're asking. And the answer is, yes, I am. Okay, so once we know that, do we need to ask again? Do we need to ask like, you know, how about today? You know, I mean, I think we know that people are frightened and there's a bunch of reasons for that. But like if we had polled people in Ukraine five years ago and said, do you think the Russians will invade? And like 80% of them said, yes. What would that tell us? And how would it help us? Yeah. And then there's the should you be frightened question. Right. That's a whole other question. And if the people doing the polls and putting them on the front pages of their newspaper think the answer is mostly yes, then we'll all know about the polls. We'll all know about the possibility of civil war. Both sides will read that and I think arm themselves and the possibility will just feed on itself. Yeah, because this is the thing that I think I'm just now realizing we have to really explain over and over again, which is that violence happens when people feel threatened. So the more you make people feel threatened, the more likely violence is going to happen. Not everybody's going to be violent, right? But it just takes a small number of people. And so now there's a certain amount of threat that is real and indisputable. And then there's a whole bunch that is embellished, manufactured, hypothetical, and imaginary. And trying to really get clearer about which is which, I think, is one of the challenges of our time. And, you know, to your point, there's a lot of financial incentives to kind of keep putting this front and center, but it does become, uh, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. So it's just not very helpful. Um, so I think that's that's the thing that we have to kind of find a way to make clearer. It's like the reason what you say as a journalist or as a pundit or as a politician, the reason that matters is not because we want to be like civil, right? 
It's because we have a ton of research and experience and history that shows us that the more threatened people feel and the more normalized violence is, the more people are going to suffer. So that is the equation that I'm not sure. I mean, do you think people, do you think people get that? I don't. I think that threats and fear are good for ratings. I think that the people who uh, make up what our news diet is have those fears and feel threatened. So it's uh, impossible for them to uh, get in touch with what you just said, which is that the more threatened people are, the greater the propensity for violence because they're feeling they're the very ones feeling threatened. And maybe in some cases they are like they get a lot of death threats yeah, right. doing what they do. Yeah, yeah, they are more threatened than than most people. Yeah, um, often. So, you know, um, there's there's just this hard reality, which is in a high conflict anywhere in the world, the journalists and the politicians and the pollsters and the academics are all still human. So a lot of them get captured by the conflict and they don't know it necessarily, right? And, and we're watching that happen now, and it's heartbreaking, right, to see people who, many of whom, you know, mean well, um, just become really distorted in their view of reality. It's almost like, you know, uh, watching a friend get really depressed, where you can see that their, their view is distorted, but you can't, it's very hard to show them a fuller picture. What is your opinion of the usefulness of hashtag resistance or the resistance? When people talk about the resistance or being part of the resistance, it's right after Donald Trump was elected and they said, what we're going to do is be stalwart in holding him to account, but also where a ban that also means they're a band committed to seeing someone who they're opposed to and always opposing that force. And it is a little bit dramatic. I mean, to me, it evokes, you know, the French underground or people who really uh, had to work in secret to upend actual people who are trying to kill you. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think it's just I, I all of this stuff, I think it for me helps a lot to just pour a bunch of psychology over it and take it out of the sort of normal... Uh, intellectual realm and say, look, what is it people want there when they join the resistance or put a sign out front or put a bumper sticker on their car or put a Trump sign out front or a Confederate flag? Like there's different things. It's not one thing. But often one of those things that people are really craving there is a sense of agency, a sense of control where they have none or they feel like they have none. Right. And so we know that humans need that to have any hope at all. And humans need to have hope to survive and solve hard problems. So I don't entirely blame people for that impulse of wanting to feel like they're doing something, right? Um, I don't think that it's super, um, I don't think it's as effective in isolation as we want it to be, right? Because it is perceived very differently. You know, if I see a Confederate flag, I see something different uh, than, you know, what that person may or may not intend or a Trump flag or a, you know, sign about the resistance or a Black Lives Matter sign. Other people see different things. So this is one of the fun, quote unquote, fun things about studying symbols in conflict. If you if you look around at other countries, you'll see that flags and symbols and statues and signs are, are always flashpoints. And that's partly because people mean different things by them. It's not that they would agree, but they mean different things. Um, so it's helpful to kind of look at you know, what do different flags mean to different people? And what is it they're really trying to say? Right, right. And kneeling during the national anthem, for instance, is a 
symbolic act that means different things to different people. Um, so in your book, listeners should know that one of the reasons it's a great book is that it has great characters. This is not abstract and it's told through identifiable people and we get to know their personalities. And one of the great ones is uh, this guy, Gary Friedman, who's a top mediator who finds himself on the town council of a community called Muir Beach and it all goes to hell. It's all, so this is a, this is a great character because he has a great personality, but also he's a mediator. He's the conflict resolution guy and he gets pulled into a high conflict. What I wanted to ask you about him was there was a moment in the book where he was inclined to call a meeting over some, to his mind, egregious act that one of the council, that one of the board members committed. And then he said, am I calling this meeting, am I calling this hearing for me or to resolve the conflict. And then because he was uh, a little more along in his path of recognizing what's going on, he canceled the meeting. What does that say about congressional hearings? What does that say about the January 6th commission? I'm glad it exists, but does it implicate the impulse to have those commissions at all? Yeah, this is such a hard thing, right? And I'm glad to use that example because Gary, I mean, he got to that after, so as you said, he was a world-renowned conflict expert who's helped thousands of people through really ugly conflicts, right? And he's written books about conflict and all kinds of things, very wise, like one of the people I trust most on this subject. He runs for local office. It takes him, as he puts it, about an eighth of a second before he gets sucked into high conflict. Two years go by where he basically loses his mind by his own telling to the conflict um, he's not sleeping well. He's not paying attention to his family. Um, and he finally realizes what has happened, that he has fully succumbed to the spell of high conflict. And he painstakingly steps out of the dance and starts interrupting it. And one of the things he does is he asks himself this three, these three questions that people may have heard, like, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? And does it need to be said by me right now? And when the answer was no <laughs> to all of those, then he would say, is there a way to resolve this without humiliating my opponents? And this is really important if you want to be effective in whatever fight you are in, right? If you humiliate your enemy, you will pay a price down the line. So humiliation, I think, is the most underappreciated force driving every high conflict I've ever seen, whether it's domestic violence or international diplomatic standoff. Humiliation is always present, perceived or real. And so what Gary was trying to do there is say, you know, if I'm holding this meeting for my own ego, for that sense of gotcha, right, that sense of righteousness, that's that's not worth it. And it's not just because it's wrong, right, but because it's, it's going to make things worse. There's a great quote by Nelson Mandela where he says, there is no one more dangerous than one who's been humiliated, even when you humiliate him rightly. So, you know, is there a way to take the audience out of this and still get accountability? Sometimes there's not. If we want to resolve high conflict, do both sides need to do it? Or can one side do the work by themselves and see a real difference? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that eventually people from both sides need to want to change the conflict. Now, there's good news here, <laughs> which, uh, in fact, I just, again, to try to make this all explicit, I just uh, invited Curtis Toller, who is the former gang leader who does violence interruption in Chicago, to uh, talk to a small group of Republican and Democratic Senate chiefs of staff. So these are very high-ranking, powerful uh, people in the U.S. Senate who work for senators. And his whole thing is, you know, how do we stop really toxic violence and conflict once it gets going. And so I asked him, 
what would it look like if you applied your methodology that you use with gangs and have used for many years to Capitol Hill, right? And, and it literally is amazing because you would just, it's the same. It's like find, replace. Like there's not a difference. And interestingly, the chiefs of staff did not hesitate to accept the analogy <laughs> that, that it was relevant, that gang conflict was similar. And, and one of the things that you would do is to invite, try to figure out who has relationships with people who have relationships with the most influential people on both sides, and then try to get them to the table. And what people always say is they'll never come to the table. Right. Like I just get on Twitter. I just wrote something and people are like, what rock are you living under? They, the GOP will never come. <laughs> like really, really upset that I had even proposed coming to the table. And this is just to talk about rules of engagement. So we lower the risk of violence so that you and your family don't get hurt. That's all we're asking for right now. OK. And what Curtis said is, look, 80 percent of people who are highly involved in violent conflict, even really violent people want a way out if only someone would invite them. So most people want to live and they want their kids to live. And this is something that we have in common. So even though it is hard to get those people all to the table, it is not impossible. And it it is something we, the US government, have helped do in other countries that are coming out of like genocides. So the idea that we can't do that here, that one side or the other is beyond hope when it comes to good faith negotiation around dialing down the temperature here, I think is naive and dangerous. Do you have any hope for Twitter being a source for anything other than high conflict? Not right now, no. Do you have any hope for any alternative to Twitter serving that function? Absolutely. Like we, you know, <laughs> overnight you could change the algorithms of Twitter to make it do something very different. You could invite the users to help come up with the rules I mean, you could think of more things than I can probably, right, about things you could do to make something like Twitter a lot healthier and better and more interesting um, tomorrow. Challenge my listeners, assuming they're that hypothetical somewhat MSNBC viewer who is aggrieved by this stuff, challenge them to think about the issues that we're talking about, democracy dying in darkness and political violence and so forth in a way that might lead them out of high conflict, but might not sit so comfortably uh, right now at first glance? Well, I think after the assault on Paul Pelosi, um, you know, I think there's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible when this happens. Everyone who studies political violence was predicting that it would happen, that it would go up right before the election and right after. Um, this stuff is actually, unfortunately, pretty predictable at now, at this point. Um, but it's still awful, right? It's still scary. Um, but the thing is, there's there's a, remember I said like your intuition is unhelpful um, in high conflict. So the usual intuition, anytime something like that happens, any, any kind of escalation of the conflict is to blame, right? Quite understandably, blame the dehumanizing rhetoric of certain GOP politicians. Others have blamed the lack of security at the Pelosi's home, right? Um, or blame mental health, right? And that is all important, worthy conversations to have. But if you think it will be enough to interrupt this cycle we're in, you are going to be disappointed. So that is the thing that I think we have to get past is that it's either look the other way or go all in on accountability, pressure, and blame. Um, so, so it's sort of like, look, if we want the future to look different than the past, we have to do something differently. Now, to your point earlier, you can do something differently and the other side doesn't reciprocate. 
But the thing is, high conflict is a system. So one change has a ripple effect on the system. Is it going to end the conflict? Is it going to make the other side suddenly come to the table? No. But I'll tell you what definitely will make things worse is just doing what we've been doing and just going all in on blame and threat and fear. So, you know, an example of what you can do when there are, uh, you know, opportunities, some kind of shock to the conflict, like, like there will be more of, unfortunately, is really seize that opportunity and say to politicians, look, how about now? How about now? Would you like to change the conflict? And you have to sometimes ask them a hundred times, right? It's not once. And you say, just like the US government pushes politicians to side, sign codes of conduct, conduct in other countries, you know, can you agree to three things that you will do? And, and guess what? That pact, that non-aggression pact is going to get violated. That's okay. Because then it triggers a mechanism to get some kind of redress that doesn't involve more violence, right? So that's, this is, again, basic things you would do, basic things we ask politicians in other countries to do, basic things we ask gang members in Chicago and LA to do. Why haven't we asked our members of Congress? Amanda Ripley is the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, host of the How To Podcast, and recently in Politico, the Politico magazine, she wrote an ex-gang leader's advice for de-escalating violence in politics. Amanda, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. I enjoyed it. And now the spiel. While you were sleeping or voting or fretting about voting, the Russians were scheming. Or haven't you heard? My main source for Kremlinology, KOTV News Tulsa, has more. Kremlin-connected entrepreneur Yevgeny Prigozhin admitted that he has interfered in U.S. elections and will continue to do so. This comes after Prigozhin, a dozen other Russian nationals, and three Russian companies were charged with operating a covery social media campaign aimed at dividing public opinion in America ahead of the 2016 presidential election. He has denied all accusations of election interference until now. To clarify, there is no such thing as a covery social media campaign. I suspect that covert was misspelled in the teleprompter, you know, T being next to Y on the keyboard. Maybe that's how those guys on ESPN got a yellow prompter. But I don't play the KOTV clip just to pick on the Tulsans. You know, a significant portion of Peachfish's staff is Tulsan, great people. The clip was typical of the coverage of Yigvigny Prigozhin and typical of the coverage of this particular incident. Election interferer admits to interfering. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get back to that. But it was a rare piece of coverage that doesn't attach one sobriquet to the Moscow-based malefactor. Yevgeny Prigozhin, dubbed Putin's chef. This is the story of the man known as Putin's chef. So this is Putin's chef. Commonly referred to as Vladimir Putin's chef. Also is Putin's chef. Ah, Putin's chef. Here's how CNN contextualized the label. Prigozhin is reportedly one of Putin's trusted confidants so close that the Russian press dubbed him the chef to the Russian president after he began catering events for the Kremlin. Does that connote closeness? 
that he's his chef. You'll never believe how tight these guys are. One caters for the other. I mean, it's practically a son-in-law, no? What I think the chef label is actually doing is attempting to diminish and humiliate the man. You could accurately call him a powerful warlord and the indicted leader of Russian hackers, which he is. Both of those things are true. But calling him the chef is giving Prigozhin the little rocket man treatment. Hope it makes the slinger of the chef nickname feel better about himself. But in any case, calling a guy who runs the Wagner Group, which is the most effective mercenary force working on behalf of the Russians in committing war crimes within the Ukraine theater, calling that guy a chef... If that isn't enough of a leveler, here's how the New York Times described Prigozhin, quote, a former Russian convict and one-time hot dog seller. So chef was too grandiose. Let's bust him down to hot dog seller. Hell, let's go one step further. Yevgeny Prigozhin, a purveyor of cylindrical meat trimmings. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who once eked out a living stuffing variety meats into collagen casings meant to be eaten via the hands. Seems an off route to shame him because there is that one glaring aspect of his biography that you might have heard about, the convicted convict part. But yeah, yeah, you can read articles about the series of successful hot dog stands, which he parlayed into a management role in a successful chain of supermarkets, which he further parlayed into owning successful restaurants and then working for Putin and then running a mercenary force who, as I said, was committing war crimes. Why not focus on the pre-hot dog period? I'd say it's more shameful. The nine to ten years he spent in prison for robbery, fraud, and possibly prostitution charges. Now, I say possibly. This is widely reported. The Washington Post still will say that he was convicted on prostitution charges. But I read an explanation saying, actually, he wasn't convicted on prostitution charges. He wasn't convicted on child prostitution charges, which is another allegation. There was maybe a mistranslation in the kind of charges that he was convicted of. And I actually read the actual description and charging documents. So it said, he committed with the use of a knife as a weapon an assault on a woman. Here's the description. Pergozin grabbed her by the neck from behind and began choking her, and Makeko, a confederate, threatened her with a knife and helped pull her away from the street. Pergozin continued to choke the victim until she lost consciousness. Pergozin, these days, has more complex weaponry than a knife in his hands. He does direct the Wagner Group, which is the military organization with close ties to the Kremlin. That's what they're saying now. Close ties to the Kremlin. It's a little like saying the Sea Org organization has close ties to Scientology. The Wagner Group is fighting in a fierce fight in Bakhmut. They are reported to have gained some ground on the battlefield or to have inflicted some damage, which is rare, a rare success, if you want to call it that, in the Ukraine war. But the bigger framework is that there's no reason they're even fighting there, except maybe to kill some Ukrainians and to show Putin, hey, we could still get it done. The latest from the Ukrainian media, and so it is Ukrainian media, is, quote, in Bakhmut, in just 24 hours, losses in the Wagner private military company amounted to 138 people, a third of them 40 soldiers killed and others wounded. According to the brigadier general in charge, even most of those wounded will never see their loved ones again. Oof, I prefer brigadier generals to keep it a little more clinical, a little less personal. But in any case, there's your chef for you, positioning himself 
as a thuggish battlefield commander from, of course, far away at no risk to himself, buttressing his position as a Kremlin hardliner. As to the report of his admission to election interference, why he made the news here in America, I would not take that as fact. I mean, he was indicted. He has interfered in the election. But did he really admit it? Here was his exact quote. I will answer you very subtly and delicately, and I apologize. I will allow a certain ambiguity. Gentlemen, we interfered, we interfere, and we will interfere carefully, precisely, surgically in our own way, as we know how, during our pinpoint operations, we will remove both kidneys and liver at once. The guy was shit-talking. He was trying to be a bad little boy and get in the heads of Americans on the eve of their election day. As Christopher Krebs, former director of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency, told CNN. But this is just an opportunity for him to get out there and continue to stoke chaos. This is manufactured operational chaos for these guys. Now, of course, Pergozin has tried to interfere and would like to interfere, and it's plausible that he launched a troll farm effort in the future or even last Monday. But the operative word is troll. That is what he's doing here. That is what we should call him and how we should think of him. The other operative word or phrase is warlord. That's what he's doing in Ukraine. And I'd like to see a little less of the operative word being chef, Putin's chef. The only thing that his current troll-like thuggery has in common with the task of a chef is that the guy likes to stir the pot. And that's it for today's show. As I mentioned, Not Even Mad has a new episode today where you'll hear Virginia Heffernan say, I feel like if inflation had happened on Trump's watch, it would be seen as something he could have done more about if he had just like kneecapped the Fed chair. Ooh fun. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. First turn and make it for the jackalootin. First, make it the slicey-dicey for making the pumpkin goats. Hmm. He's getting a knife.